This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Jim, one of your pastors. It's a gift to be with you this morning. We're going to start by telling you about a disease, a disease that I have been fascinated with for most of my life. This disease has concerned me. It's made me burst out into laughter. It has annoyed me. It has at times terrified me. The disease is called somnambulism. And if you don't know what this disease is, it's when you walk or talk or speak or do other types of activities in your sleep. And I don't think I have gone but a few nights in my entire life without being in the room with somebody who has this disease. I went from my brother, who was a sleepwalker, sleep talker, to my wife, who does the same. And if you know somebody with this, you know that it can be hilarious and fascinating. My wife is the type of person who's very organized, so the type of sleep talking she does isn't all that alarming, uh, but it is strange to be woken up at midnight with someone staring at your face, wanting to talk about insurance rates and check on the status of ketchup. <laughs> I can deal with that one. My brother was worse. My brother, there was one night when we were camping, and he wakes up at 2 a.m. in the morning screaming that we are being attacked by bears. And you can just imagine what we were, we were going through, because we thought this was going down. We wake up, we're looking for the bears. He tries to get out of the tent, but goes the wrong direction and says, the bears stole the, the zipper, we can't get out of here. <laughs> You can imagine we did not get any sleep that night. But as bad as I've had it, there are other people who have it way worse. There are crazy stories that I was looking up this week of people who are sleepwalkers and sleep talkers. Some people are productive. There are, there are people who are like terrible artists, but then somehow during the night they make these beautiful paintings. The craziest one is what people will eat when they're sleep eaters. There are stories of people picking up raw potatoes like an apple and just eating them, or chewing on cigarette butts and eating those. Probably my favorite story, and of course this is a story from Florida, <laughs> is a 77-year-old man who walked out of his house and into the middle of a pond and then woke up and found himself surrounded by alligators and had to fight them off with a cane. <laughs> what do all of these things have in common? All sleepwalking, all sleep talking, all has in common that there are activities that seem like someone's awake. The outside observer would assume that that person is awake but they are asleep. The reality is they are asleep and they need to be woken up before something dangerous happens. So today as we look at Revelation 3, where Jesus addresses the church in Sardis and he walks among them as the great physician, he is gonna diagnose them with the disease of spiritual sleepwalking. That they are a som somnambulous 
community who needs to repent and receive healing from him. So go ahead and read in verses one and two. It says, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you've received and heard, hold fast and repent. In verse one and two, we see Jesus giving the diagnosis. The church in Sardis has this reputation of being awake, the reputation of being alive and vibrant, but their incomplete works show that they are actually dead. They are actually asleep. See, in Revelation, what we've looked at at the past several weeks is in the first few chapters, Jesus is walking among the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's commending them for some things, but he's also diagnosing them with the areas of life, in the areas of life where they are not healthy and they need to turn back to Jesus and be healed. Like a great physician walking among the churches, diagnosing them of their disease. And his disease for the church in Sardis is that they are a sleepwalking church, that they are complacent, that they have this reputation of being alive and vibrant. They were one of the largest churches in the region. They were likely growing. It had good, moral, theologically accurate people who just minded their own business. They were in the midst of a thriving city and it seemed like they were in a thriving church and from the outside, it would seem like they are awake, but they are not. They're asleep. They're dead. They are wandering through life without a deep engagement with Jesus. And so Jesus uses the metaphor of death and asleep. He kind of mixes the metaphor to speak to the dire situation that they are in and how they are on the verge of death. That they seem alive, but they're dead. They seem awake, but they are asleep and that they need to wake up. That they are a community that looks very Christian from the outside, but they lack attentiveness to God and his kingdom. And he calls them to wake up, to remember the gospel and return to Jesus. He diagnoses them with spiritual sleepwalking. But then in verse two, he gives the symptoms of this disease. He says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. What are the symptoms of the disease of spiritual sleepwalking? He says it's incomplete or unfinished deeds. This, this doesn't mean that they had no good deeds, that there wasn't some semblance of Christian activity, but it was incomplete, unfinished. It could mean that they started out as a strong church that had a deep connection to Jesus and was following him, but over time had drifted. And they were looking back at their former activity to think that they're doing just fine today. Or, this could refer to the fact that there is something about their deeds, their works, that is evidence that there's a veneer of Christianity, but it's shallow and it's not evidence 
that they are really connected to him, abiding in him. Now, let's be really clear. When it comes to works, we don't earn our way to God through good deeds. We are saved by faith, not by our works. That was covered in the Reformation. Actually, it was covered in the Apostle Paul long ago. Ephesians 2. If you grew up in Christian circles, you, I'm certain you've heard this but we can't hear it enough. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You are saved not by your deeds, not by your works, but by the work of Jesus on your behalf. That was true for the people in Sardis and it is true for us. But in, in emphasizing the importance of this, over time, I think something has happened where verse 10 unintentionally gets clipped from the Bible, where it says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, you are not saved by your good works, but you are saved for good works. That a real encounter with Jesus should produce a life of fruitful works that are evidence that that person knows him, is connected to him, is abiding in him, is drawing life from him. And Jesus is looking at the church in Sardis and seeing something about their works, is saying, it's shallow, it's incomplete. You are sleepwalking. They are a church that is marked by a life of some external Christianity, but lacks the deep faith that comes from really connecting to Jesus. They're highly identified as Christians and do a lot of Christian stuff, but they don't have a deep encounter with Jesus that transforms their work and their family and their relationships and their heart and their mind and all of life. Rather, it's a surface level Christianity. They're sleepwalking. It seems like they're following Jesus, but they're just going through the motions. What does this look like for us? If we got a hold of a cosmic web MD where you could look at the symptoms of spiritual sleepwalking, what might we find there? We might see that this disease affects the mind, where we think true things about Jesus but Jesus doesn't shape the way we think about all things. Where our worldview isn't shaped by the biblical story, but some other cultural story, and his ways don't permeate our every decision, the way we look at our work and ethical issues and our relationships, we could see that the disease affects our hearts. That we're people who may like Jesus. We may have some positive feelings about Jesus, be pro-Jesus. But if you look at what we really love, it's not Jesus, but it's success or some hobby or some other thing that our, our lives and our hearts are oriented around that get the core of our affections. A disease that affects our hands where we do some good deeds, you give some money from time to time, you volunteer for an hour or two, but you are unwilling to follow Jesus and the, the call to take up the cross and sacrificially love others. 
What does this look like? It looks like the type of person who prays. But they pray only when things get hard and they treat God as a genie who's supposed to protect their comfort, not praying to deeply know God and encounter Jesus. It's the person who lives a generally moral life and doesn't do anything that bad like murder or steal. But they excuse the respectable sins like gossip and greed and pride and feel no conviction at all. It's where they attend church as long as the Cardinals have a bad roster. But they don't engage in real Christian community where you're helping each other know Jesus and grow in Christ. It's where you're a moral, nice, theologically orthodox, church-going person surrounded by a pile of Christian bumper stickers and K-Love songs and veggie tales and podcasts, and you have everything that's connected to Christianity, but you're not connected to Christ. You're not abiding in the vine. And you have enough Christian stuff around you to deceive you, that, to make you think that you are really walking with him, but you are sleepwalking. Jesus says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. How does this happen? How do we get into this place where we fall asleep to Jesus? The one who lived the perfect sinless life, who, whose personality is unlike anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth, who died for you, who's resurrected, and you just drift from that. How do we get there? The church in Sardis was just one generation removed from people who had seen the risen Jesus, who had seen his resurrected body, and they were willing to die for Jesus. And now you've got a community of sleepwalkers who are just shrugging. How does this happen? You see, it's not a deliberate rejection of Jesus, but it's slowly being lulled to sleep by the comforts of cultural lullabies. Sardis was a city that was marked by wealth and comfort and security. A few weeks ago, Warren said that Pergamum was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Jake said Thyatira was like Silicon Valley. And I'm gonna say that Sardis is like the suburbs of the Roman world. It has a thriving economy, comfortable lifestyle, and even though the commentaries didn't say it, I would guess, pretty low crime. The ease of life that they experienced played a significant role in them becoming complacent as they are lulled to sleep and become sleepwalkers. They had wealth. Sardis was known for abundant commercial opportunities and rich agriculture, and it was easy to make enough money to where you would never feel desperate for Jesus to provide for you. They had comfort. There's no mention of persecution ever happening with the church in Sardis. They were so comfortable in that city that they offered no challenge to the idols of that city. They had such little impact that they weren't even considered worthy of spending your time to persecute. They lived a comfortable life where there wasn't a sense of urgency and then they did not need the comfort of Christ. 
security. The oldest part of this city was on a hill and it had a, a strong fortress around it. And there was the sense that they were completely safe from outside attack. And without threats, they didn't need to call on Jesus to protect them. The church in Sardis didn't outright reject Jesus, but they were so comfortable that they were lulled to sleep by the comforts of the world. And you may be asking, are you saying it's bad to feel comfortable, to have some security, to have money? No, I'm not telling you that you need to go get a pet porcupine and snuggle with it just to make your life harder so that you can trust Jesus more. But what we do need to see is that there is a danger that comes with comfort and ease to where it serves as a cultural lullaby to get us to fall asleep to Jesus and his kingdom and his ways. For us, it can also be comfort and wealth and security, but there are other ones as well. The lullaby of noise, where the voice of Jesus is drowned out by the unending banter of a thousand YouTube channels, becoming the white noise of our world that lulls us asleep to Jesus and his kingdom. And the one I struggle with the most, the lullaby of busyness, where the low hum of frantic activity, tasks, hobbies, house projects, side hustles, crowds out any intentional time with Jesus, and we find ourselves asleep to God and his ways. This is the one I struggle with, the lullaby of busyness. This weekend, I did a little exercise, I encourage you to do it, where I looked over the years of my life, and I just tried to say, what do I remember about God showing up in these years of my life? What was, what was God up to? And there's one year that haunted me, 2018. Because I couldn't think of a thing that God did in 2018. I thought, man, this must have been a rough year. So I went back on my phone and looked at pictures. I looked at my goals. I read my journal. And here's the deal. 2018 was like a pretty successful pretty easy, pretty good year, maybe the most successful of the last decade. I finished writing a book. I went on about 10 trips to interesting places. I was invited to speak at a number of places. I had a pretty good bench press. That was in my goals. <laughs> my fo fantasy football team dominated that year. It was so full of good work and good hobbies that there's nothing wrong with, but it got so thick and so dense that it crowded out Jesus. And I don't have a single memory of God doing something or using me or showing up and transforming me in, in that year. I slept walked through 2018 and I'll never get that year back. And many of us, have lost years to sleepwalking and being inattentive to Jesus. Not just from an outright rejection, but because we're lulled to sleep. Now I know some of you are probably asking the question, okay, is this really that bad? 
how serious is this really? Is this like a terminal illness or is this just like a bunion in the body of Christ? Like something you can learn to live with. Like what's wrong with having a bunch of hobbies, going on some trips? You prayed a prayer to know Jesus when you were a kid. You have a fun life and then you just go spend eternity with him. We're gonna be there for eternity. We'll get to know him then. How serious is this disease? And what is the prognosis? Jesus says that it depends on if it's treated or not. And he gives us two paths. The path of repentance, which leads to eternal flourishing that breaks into life now, or the path of ignoring the problem and sleepwalking through life, which could be a death sentence. In other words, what is the prognosis? Let's read. What happens if this disease is untreated? In verse three, Jesus says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I am coming to you. Jesus is speaking to the seriousness of sin. In verse two, it talks about how this could be a death sentence that you're about to die. He's urging them awake, calling them to repent, to turn to them, And and saying, you may feel like you're doing fine, but you're not. This seems like a harmless disease, but it's not. As I was looking at these various stories of of sleepwalkers, I mean, I did quite the rabbit trail this week. A lot of them were humorous, like eating potatoes. And, you know, one guy was mowing his lawn nude in the middle of the night. But some of them got pretty serious. It's funny until it's not. There was a guy who walked out of his house in the freezing cold and walked out into the forest and died of hypothermia. And he must have passed dozens of people who never stopped and they could probably see that something wasn't right and they didn't wake him up. But Jesus loves his people. He loves his church too much to let us just sleepwalk into death. And so he wakes us up with this stark, jarring image of Jesus coming like a thief in the night, not knowing what hour that he is coming. This image is used by Jesus, Paul, and Peter, and it speaks to when Jesus returns, when he returns to judge, when he returns and we have to give an account for our lives. And it speaks to the surprise, the suddenness. It's for so many people, it comes unexpected. That you don't know how much life you have left, but you feel like you have a lot, and then it comes suddenly. This metaphor is pretty terrifying if you really think about it. Like, what is scarier than sleeping in your bed, being comfortable, knowing that there's a home invasion happening in your house. There is no moment that I can think of where there is such a great overlap between your comfort and ease and your absolute danger as the moment right before you realize that your home is being invaded by a robber. It should hit us like a jarring image. And it it gives us 
this call to be attentive to our lives, to wake up, to realize the danger that is at hand when you are sleepwalking. Because Jesus could return at any moment and you can die at any moment. And just like that, you're standing before Jesus and have the question of, am I sleepwalking or am I following him? Now, it is possible to go through life and to have seasons of sleepwalking like I did in 2018. And you're a real believer and you're really following him, but it's this season where you lose focus and your eyes shift away from Jesus. But there's also a great danger that if these seasons are stacking upon each other and you look out over the course of your life and most of it is sleepwalking, that you have to wrestle with the question of, do I really know Jesus? Even if I've been surrounded by Christian stuff, Jesus in Matthew 7 says that when he returns, there will be people who claim to have done great deeds and Christian activity, but Jesus will say, I never knew you. Just as the sleepwalker is in danger walking into the forest when they are about to die, Jesus knows that some of us are sleepwalking ourselves into an eternity apart from Jesus. And he says, wake up. You are in danger and you don't even know it. Turn to me. Come out of your slumber and live real life. Sleepwalking is dangerous for you. But not just you. It's dangerous for others too. Like actual, the disease of sleepwalking, not just the metaphor, can actually be harmful to others. I've read of stories of people who loved their family and deeply cared for them and set their house on fire when they were sleepwalking or got in a car accident unintentionally thinking they're doing this safe thing and it's dangerous to others. In the same way, spiritual sleepwalking, claiming to follow Jesus but not abiding in him can actually be harmful to others. Let me give an example. Who here has heard the statistic that Christian divorce rates are just as high as people who are not Christians? Who's heard that statistic? It's a pretty common statistic that's out there. Here's the thing, it's not actually true. Brad Wilcox, a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, uh, has noted that the statistics are skewed because it includes both actual followers of Jesus who are living out their faith and nom what he calls nominal Christians, who are Christians in name only, who identify as Christian because of family tradition or cultural background, but they actually de don't deeply engage in Jesus. He's not the center of their life. In his research, Wilcox was able to separate out the nominal Christians and what he calls the actively involved Christians, and here's what he found. He found that among actively involved Christians, they are least likely to, be, to get divorced, least likely to cheat on their spouse, least likely to be involved with domestic violence. It was the top. But, and here is the part that it should be jarring for us. The nominal Christian, the person in name only, 
the sleepwalking Christian, was the most likely to get divorced, the most likely to be violent in the home, and was far worse than people of other religions, atheistic, agnostic, whatever. Wrap your heads around it. The reason why it's equal is because the nominal Christians are ruining the stats. This, is, this should be jarring. Because it, may, it means that you might actually be doing more harm to people in your home who live with you if you're just sprinkling a little bit of Jesus onto your otherwise, your life that otherwise is focused on something else. Why is that? I think it's often that they use the label of Christian to think that they're doing just fine, which creates some self-justification, a lack of self-awareness, a lack of self-reflection, and a lack of the leading and the presence of Jesus in their life, and they actually end up harming people more. When we follow Jesus at work and in the home and in, at, at school and in the other areas of life, we can actually live a fruitful life that contributes to the flourishing of the city and the flourishing of others. But the sleepwalker is doing great damage and they don't even know it. This happened to me when I was 16. That's about the age I came to know Jesus. And if I reflect back on that time, probably the biggest barrier I had to hearing anything about Jesus was a group of, I guess you'd call them friends, who, were, who I played football with uh, in Pop Warner, and then they eventually went to a different school. And they were Christian everything, Christian school, Christian home, Christian, I don't know, they had the Christian t-shirts where they like, had little puns on it and stuff. But these guys went to the same parties as me. They were involved with the same foolishness. But there was a certain arrogance, a certain just kind of gossip that they would have, a way that they would look down on people that made me think, I don't want anything to do with Jesus if that's the Jesus that they're representing. Eventually, when I was 16, I became a believer. God got a hold of me show up at church, and these guys are at that church. I was in the same small group as them, and I was amazed by how they knew all the answers, all the Christian lingo, and they were very quick to correct you on it. You know, I was so passionate, fired up about knowing Jesus. I didn't know anything about him. Like, I didn't know anything about the Bible, but I was just coming in there. I remember referencing the book of Job as I was reading my Bible. And they corrected me and told me that it was the book of Job. I was like, look, dude, I don't know a lot, but I know that that word is Job. <laughs> I remember in a Bible study where we were reading about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, uh, and they would, after someone mentioned it, they would all say that he was a we little man. I was like, what is this? Why does everyone talk like a leprechaun when this guy is brought up? I didn't know there was a song. I remember genuinely saying the phrase, genuinely, that God is good. 
And like well-conditioned soldiers, they all just said, all the time. I was like, yeah, that's true. He is good all the time. (laughs) Here's the thing. They knew the right answers, but they didn't know the Jesus behind those answers. They knew that Job was pronounced Job, but they never knew the opportunity of clinging to God like Job did in the midst of his suffering. They knew that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but they didn't know the joy of being called out of the tree by Jesus, even though you feel like an unworthy sinner in receiving his forgiveness and mercy. They knew that you're supposed to say God is good all the time, but they did not know the goodness of God all the time. They were sleepwalking and misrepresenting Jesus in the world. They knew the right answers, but they did not know Jesus. Their sleepwalking was a harm to others. You may say, is there any good news to this? And there is. In verse four, Jesus gives us the good news and says that the prognosis is actually quite good if we receive the medicine of repentance. If we follow him, the disease can be treated. In verse four, it says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He's talking about the church in Sardis and saying, there there are some people here who have not been stained by idolatry. They are actually really following Jesus, and they are among you, and here's what they get in life. They will walk with me. For those who are, wake up from sleepwalking, you get the privilege of walking with Jesus, even in the midst of the cultural lullabies, hearing his voice louder of experiencing the joy of attentively following Jesus in all of life now, that your work, your family, your school, recreation, all of it is an opportunity to know Jesus and behold him and walk with him and be attentive to him. To those who wake up, you get to know and be known by Jesus in this life. But it also speaks to a better future. Verse five, the one who's victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and the angels. This is speaking to a future flourishing for those who wake up and follow Jesus. A future flourishing in the fullness of his kingdom when he returns that is better than anything Sardis has to offer. Says that they're dressed in white robes. It's not a John Crawford fashion choice. But for Roman people in that day, to be dressed in white symbolized purity and victory. They wore it in festivals and sacred ceremonies and military victories. It was worn by great Roman dignitaries and generals as they celebrated the victory of war. And it was a feast and it was joyful and wearing white 
means that you were in on the feast. Jesus says to those who repent and follow me and for those who wake up, you're experiencing more joy. You're heading to a greater celebration than the Roman generals could ever imagine in the fullness of my kingdom. And not only that, that there is a place of belonging. It says your name is written in the book of life. In those days when people, when Christians would resist the idols of that day and follow Jesus, often their names would be be blotted out of the citizen registry in Rome. And what we get here is a picture of, of Jesus saying, there is a place where your name is written and it cannot be blotted out that you belong and you belong with me and you may be blotted out of Rome, but you are not blotted out of the kingdom. Your name is written in my book. For those who wake up and repent, they are headed to a city with more flourishing than you could ever imagine in Sardis or in Tempe or in Gilbert or in Chandler. He's giving them a vision of a future kingdom that is greater than the dream that they are having as they are sleepwalking. You could call it the Sardis dream then, you could call it the American dream now. But he's offering something greater than the wealth, security, and comfort of that place. Everything they're looking for in Sardis is actually found in Jesus, the one who says he holds the stars and the seven spirits in his hand, a picture of provision. In our sleepwalking state, some of us are dreaming about finding happiness in success or possessions or hobbies, but we know that that quick hit of dopamine will not last. But the reality is that that cheap happiness cannot compare with the joy of knowing and walking with Jesus and walking into a future where we wear the white robes of the kingdom and celebrate a faithful life of following Jesus rather than collecting trinkets. Some of us dream of security and safety, where we think we can pile up enough money and take enough supplements to make us comfortable and safe. But the reality is that it's an illusion. It can disappear in a second. But for those who know Christ, who wake up, You can live a courageous life and face terrifying things because you know that you're headed to the city whose builder and architect is God where there will be no more death and pain and tears and you experience true safety and security. Some of us dream about a meaningful life where if we can just stack up enough accomplishments, we can make a name for ourselves. The reality is, as soon as you die, Maybe before you die, people will blot your accomplishments out of their memory. But for those who repent and wake up, you don't have to make a name for yourself because you can live the thrilling life of actually walking with Jesus day to day, living for his name, not your own, and knowing that your name is safe and secure and written in his book. Jesus gives the two paths for the sleepwalkers. You can leave it untreated, where you sleepwalk your way into an eternity apart from Jesus, harming yourself and others. Or you can receive the treatment of repentance, 
where you're headed toward a kingdom of flourishing. And in the meantime, get to walk with Jesus, tasting that kingdom. So the question remains, what is the treatment? He's given us the symptoms, the diagnosis, the prognosis. What is the treatment? He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. What's the treatment? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say start trying harder to be a better Christian. It doesn't say conjure up passionate big emotions. It doesn't say implement greater discipline and practices. As good as those things are, that's not the cure. That's not the response. He gives three commands. To wake up, to remember, and to repent. Wake up, remember, and repent. Wake up. In other words, pay attention to your life. Look at your life. Don't just sleepwalk through all of your days, but pay attention and see, are you oriented toward Jesus or not? Don't just float through life without examining your life. This is a call to prayerful introspection. But that's not enough. If all you're going to do is introspection and just look at your life and look at how bad you've messed up, you do need to do that, but if that's all you do, then you're never looking to Jesus. And that's why he says, remember. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. He's calling them to remember the gospel that was delivered to them. To remember that Jesus lived the life that you could not live. And he died a death that you deserved so that you could know him and be known by him. Remember the joy of experiencing forgiveness and mercy. Tap into that memory again of what it was like to know that you were separated from Jesus, but he brought you near. Remember the unparalleled goodness of Jesus that is found nowhere else in the world, that when you look at him and what he is like and his personality, there's no one like him. Remember that he's present and offers to walk with you. Remember that he is risen and will one day return and give you your white robes and take you into the celebration of his kingdom. Remember. And then once you've looked at your life and woken up and you remembered, there's only one thing left, which is to repent which simply means to turn from your sin and idolatry and turn towards the one who offers real life. See how Jesus offers the life that is better than the illusions and dreams that are floating around in your sleepwalking. So I close with these questions. In what areas of your life are you sleepwalking? Are you sleepwalking through your family? 
Do you spend a lot of time in the presence of your family, but you rarely intentionally have meaningful time together or meaningful time to follow Jesus together? And everyone has one ear pod in their ear as they waste away the hours and months and years, and then one day it'll end like a thief in the night. And you will realize that you have slept away decades of time with your family. You've had a full calendar, but not full hearts. If that is you, Jesus' invitation is to wake up, to repent, to follow Jesus and turn back towards him and turn your home into a sanctuary where you encounter him and are known by him and know him with the rest of your family, making memories that you will celebrate in eternity together. What about community? Are you sleepwalking through community and your life together with other Christians? Where you don't really follow Jesus together, but it's more about being mutually entertained. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying God's gifts, but we don't want life to end like a thief in the night where you realize you've watched a thousand movies but never lived a real story and never lived into the biblical story. For you, Jesus says, wake up and repent and follow me. Help one another know me. Walk together through the challenges of life, shoulder to shoulder. Walk with me on mission together into that great celebration in the kingdom where you look at a life that wasn't wasted. What about work? Are you sleepwalking through your work? Where you do the bare minimum to get a paycheck in order to fund some shallow weekend hobbies. And then one day it comes like a thief in the night and you realize that you've wasted the 90,000 hours of opportunity to worship God and serve others and mostly said no. For you, the invitation is to wake up and repent and follow Jesus where you can use your gifts and abilities to cultivate his world in a way that serves others, where you find moments throughout your day to be attentive to him as Jesus prayerfully leads you through his task list, where Mondays become sacred opportunities to love God and love others. What is the area of life in which you are sleepwalking? And whatever that area is, the call is simple. Wake up, look at your life with clarity. Remember, remember the overwhelming goodness of Jesus and what he offers you and repent. Turn from a life of sleepwalking and walk with Jesus in all of life. Let's pray. God, I do thank you that you speak to us, you wake us up, that you love us enough to call us to wake up and to follow you. I thank you for the future, flourishing of the kingdom, where we, where we wear the, right, the white robes and see our names written in your book and are fully known by you and know you deeply. I thank you that you walk with us in life now. And I pray for all of us in the areas where we're asleep that you would show them to us and show us 
the path of following you rather than the path of sleepwalking. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a moment now to respond. And we respond in a few ways. One is we take the bread and the wine, representing the body of Christ that was given for us. We take the bread. And the cup represents the blood that was poured out for us to wake us up and to show us real life. We respond through giving, where we respond to his generosity by acts of generosity. We respond through singing to the one who is worthy of every syllable we can sing about him. And we respond in prayer. If you need someone to pray for you, we'll have people on either side of the room who will be there to walk with you. So let's respond now. Please stand as we respond.